excited to jump in here today to the book of Matthew, chapter number 8. Um, now, the book of Matthew is um, a very profound book. Really, all of the scripture is. I think sometimes we do the Bible injustice by going to it and not seeing it for how uh, complex it truly can be. And even in the book of Matthew, we see a very definite structure of the book. We spent about four weeks just going through the introduction of Matthew's chapter 1 and 2. Um, and then really, chapter 3 kind of turns that corner. And then we see Jesus, chapter 4, um, with the temptation, etc., etc. And uh, throughout the book, we have five major discourses or major uh, lectures by Christ, the first of which we've already made our way through. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And then here as we come into chapter 8 and 9, um, what we're going to, we're kind of going into a pattern. So if you were here with us a couple of weeks ago, and then again last week, you're going to begin to sense this pattern. Because in chapter 8, he introduces, Matthew does, the author, introduces the chapter with um, a set of three stories that speak to a similar theme in Christ's life and ministry. And then after that, there's a little bit of dialogue that takes place before transitioning to another set of three stories that intertwine and tell us things about Jesus and who he is. And so instead of dragging those out, what I've chosen to do today is to kind of tackle all three of those at once. That means we have a lot to cover and um, a relatively short amount of time to do it in. So if I talk fast, I apologize. What you can do is you can go home and you can uh, download the podcast in a couple days, put it on half speed, and there you go, all right? Um, but no, I'm, uh, we do have a lot to cover. I'm going to try to make sure that we digest it all. And here's what I really would encourage you to do. As we open up this, um, for the sake of time, any time that um, I get up here preach or anyone else does for that matter, um, we have to pick and choose how we approach the text and some of the things that we draw out because we could spend all day going through this study. And some of you are hungry already, all right? So 10.58 and some of you, your stomachs are growling. And so uh, I don't think, I think if we go all day, um, there'd be me and three other people left possibly. Um, and those three would be two of my kids who are asking me when we can go eat and one, someone who fell asleep. So um, that would be the crowd that would be remaining if we're trying to go through at the end of the day. But what I would encourage you to do would be take the word, go home and continue to study this. And this isn't just true today. This is true of any time that we gather together. Um, the thing that you could do uh, most to benefit from the scriptures is as we speak of these things together throughout the week, open up your Bible, read through the passage again. Uh, maybe you'll notice things that we didn't talk about. Maybe you'll see other things within it um, that are contained that we didn't have the time to get to um, or things that maybe I didn't even notice just because um, I have the title of pastor does not mean that all of a sudden I know everything there is to know about the word of God. No. Um, we continue to learn and study and grow. And so I encourage you to continue in that. And so today, as we open up this, there's a theme that's taking place throughout these three stories. Um, and that theme is the title of our time together today. Who is this man? Who is this man? Now, all three of these stories are stories that um, may be familiar to some of you. In fact, these stories are all recorded in other Gospels as well. Matthew is not the only one to record these stories, but he records them all a little bit differently. And so we're going to approach them, obviously, from Matthew's text. And we're going to try to understand what is Matthew trying to help us to understand about Jesus. And so let's begin in verse number 23. And we're going to read down through verse number 27 to start with. When he got into the boat, this is Jesus, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. 
And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Okay. Anyone in here ever get afraid? <laughs> All right. Like, um, let's just uh, acknowledge that these guys aren't weird for being afraid, right? Um, has anyone ever been um, in a storm on land? Right? All of us have. Been. Any of you ever been um, a little bit afraid in a storm that's taking place on the land? Right? Um, now imagine yourself not on the land. <laughs> it just gets worse, doesn't it? Um, now, not only is everything beating down around you, but the thing you're standing on is also up and down and sideways. Um, some of you are probably getting a little nauseated just thinking about it. Um, and that's normal is what we call that. Normal is the word. And so here, what we see is they say, Jesus looks at them and says this, why are you afraid? Oh, ye of little faith. And so he addresses the men. <laughs> And then he turns, he rises up and rebuked the winds in the sea. That word rebuke, that's like chastise. It's like getting onto your kids, right? Hey, stop doing that. Gets, he rebukes the winds in the sea and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, as we press into this passage here, um, oftentimes these storms that we read about um, in the scripture or even the, the metaphor of a storm oftentimes applies to situations that we have taking place in our life, right? Maybe we've heard the phrase, the storms of life. Uh, sometimes I think it's common for us to um, have a misconception that sometimes those storms of life come about as a result of um, a sin, or a result of something that we are doing wrong, or a result of something that we ought not to be doing. But I want to look at the very first verse that we read together, verse number 23. And how did the disciples get into the storm in the first place? What were the disciples doing? They were following Jesus. Jesus didn't say, hey, let's go this way. And they said, you know what? It's shorter to take the boat. That's not what happened. They were following Jesus. And where did Jesus lead them to? The storm. Did Jesus know the storm was coming? I mean, we have to believe that. Yes, he did. He knows all things, right? And so he understood that there was a storm coming. And yet, he chose to lead them into the storm. Now, if I was your captain, and I said, hey, come jump on my boat with me. We're going to drive into the storm. You should say no. I'm just going to tell you that. Um, you should not trust me to pilot a boat through a storm. I, none of my skills, all right? Uh, you, piloting the boat out of the dock would be a miracle in and of itself, much less when the waves start crashing around us. Now, Jesus, though, intentionally takes his disciples, goes onto this boat, and goes into the storm. Let's, before we go too deep into everything else today, let's acknowledge that sometimes God's leadership in our lives takes us into storms, not away from them. Right? Sometimes God's leadership in our life takes us into storms. That's, we should expect that. We should expect trial and tribulation. We should expect hardships. When Christians come and Christians begin to bemoan and say, but I'm such a good person, and yet these bad things are happening to me. Um, I want to, I respond gently, I promise, okay. Uh, but at the same time, there's part of all of us that we, we, we should probably be like, where did you get that idea? Because <laughs> that's not anywhere in the scripture. 
We don't see that. In fact, we see the opposite because we see Jesus going and Jesus doing and Jesus saying, follow me. And they follow him. And so they're doing what they're supposed to do. And then now they look around and there's a storm. But that's to be expected for the followers of Jesus. We're not guaranteed a, a peaceful life. But here's what we are guaranteed is what we see here in the next few verses. Is that we have someone that we're following that we can rely on to see us through the storms. Because watch what happens next. Jesus here, what is he doing in verse 24, right? The last phrase. But he was asleep. And so the waves are tossing, all right? And um, some of you sleep like this, right? Um, you can have kids screaming in the next room, with thunderstorms coming, the house is on fire, and you're asleep. Um, and God bless those of us who are able to get a good night's rest in spite of everything else. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is just resting. He's asleep. And the disciples are panicking. And so they wake up and they say, watch this. Um, they're a little dramatic. Verse 25. If you have daughters, you can relate to this. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. Right? Jesus, we're dying. That's what they get up and they do. And there's the response. I mean, could you imagine being shaken out of sleep by a grown man saying, save us, we're dying. That's what's happening here in this story. And so as Jesus awakes, as they come to him, at least let's say this, let's give them some credit. At least they had the sense to go to Jesus, right? They weren't like, let's jump out of this ship and let's get ourselves out of here. At least they had like the right state of mind to go to Jesus with the problems. And so we'll give them credit where credit is due. But they say, Jesus, Lord, we're dying. And he says to them, what? Why are you afraid? <laughs> like, I would, I, I don't even know. How, how do you respond to that if you're these disciples? Um, Jesus, because like I'm this big and the storm's this big. And there's this boat, and like, what do you mean, why am I afraid? Why aren't you afraid? Like, what's wrong with you? But what does he say? He says, why are you afraid, O ye of little faith? And I want to pause. Why would Jesus critique their faith? Well, let's pause for a moment, and let's rewind. Let's think back a little bit. So far in the book of Matthew, what have these men witnessed. What have these men witnessed? What did they see in the beginning of chapter number eight? Because remember where this is coming. First part of chapter number eight, a leper, a man with leprosy comes to Jesus. And what happens? Jesus doesn't, hey, you're unclean. Now don't you go get out of here. He touches him and makes him clean. And then uh, immediately after that, a centurion, a Roman comes to Jesus and says, hey, my servant is sick. My servant is near to death. And I know you can heal him. And Jesus says, sure, I'm on my way. And the centurion says, no, 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 no. You can just say the words. I don't even want to bother you with this. You say the words and it'll happen. And Jesus commends his faith and heals the man. And then in verse 14, he enters Peter's house, sees his mother-in-law lying sick and heals her. And then many were brought with demons and he cast out the spirits. He, he healed all who were sick. And so he's done all of these things just moments before. And then now when the situation applies to the disciples, when they're the ones in trouble, their faith goes out the window. Can I say this? Um, it's easy for us to have faith for other people, isn't it? It's easy for me to be like, Hey, you just need to have faith. That can be very uh, simple to say and simple to assign, isn't it? 
But then all of a sudden, when the faith is directed towards me, and I'm the one that has to have faith because my situation is difficult, well, that changes everything. I know I told you to have faith, but I'm going to freak out if that's okay. So what the disciples really failed to do here is they knew the power of Jesus, but they failed to believe it for their situation. They knew the power of Jesus. They watched him. They were standing there as he healed sick and as he cast out demons with just a word. As he did these miraculous things that no one had ever seen done before. As lame were being brought to him and they were walking away healed. They witnessed this. But they didn't apply it to their lives. So can I ask you today, what is it today that you're struggling with faith for? You would counsel someone else and you would say, hey, have faith in God through this. Christ is going to see you through. He's going to be stable. He's going to be your anchor. He's going to be your rock. But then it's totally different when it applies to us. Where is that? Where is that disconnect within our own lives and our own faith? Because we have to recognize this if we're going to reconcile with it. If we're going to, can I say this? Repent of it and turn and have faith. And so Jesus looks at them and says, why are you afraid? You have little faith. Not because these were men that had just met him. These were men that knew the power that he had and yet chose faithlessness and fear over trusting in Jesus. And so they knew the power. They knew the power, but they failed to apply it to their situation. You see, um, it's funny how we'll do this sometimes. Um, how many of you fly on airplanes every so often, right? Um, you've flown on an airplane before. Wow, three of us. That's amazing. It's, oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just caught me off guard. Um, I'm like, man, okay. I know, like, we're like 20 minutes from an airport, guys. Like, <laughs> I'll pay for a ticket. It's a fun experience. Um, we, we flew on an airplane, right? How many of you knew the pilot when you got on that airplane? What? And you still got on anyways. <laughs> Some of you may have been freaking out the whole time because of that, but you know, whatever. Uh, we get on an airplane, we've never even met the pilot. And then here, these are men that are in the boat with Jesus, and they're like freaking out when they know who he is and what he can do. Listen, God's not our co-pilot. God's not our, God is, listen, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, he is our Lord, he is our Savior, he's the one that we can follow. And understand this, um, he's piloting the ship where he wants it to go. And so it might go through a storm. But if he wants to go through a storm, can I tell you this? The storm is the best place for you. Because Jesus didn't take them into the storm to ruin their faith, did he? How did they emerge from the storm? They were better for the storm, weren't they? Well, watch what takes place here. Watch what takes place here. He rebukes them, says, you have little faith. He, re he rises, rebukes the wind and the sea, and what? There was a great calm. Verse 27, the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? Even the winds and sea obey him. All of a sudden, their understanding of Jesus increased as a result of the storm. They went into the storm thinking, wow, this guy can heal. That's pretty cool. They come out of the storm saying, wait a second. Nature itself, creation itself bows down to him. That's another level. That's a different story. That changes everything. But we have to also understand that faith must be tested before it can be trusted. Faith must be tested before it can be trusted. You see, if you uh, just met someone who came up and they made a big promise to you, 
They said, wow, look at what I can do for you. Um, you would probably say a little skeptically, okay, like let's wait and see. And appropriately so. Why? Because you don't have any trust in that individual. But if your best friend for 30 years came up and said, hey, listen, I want to do this thing. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. Why? Because you trust them. Because your relationship has been tested over and over and over again. Um, and maybe our faith could be compared to a balloon. Um, if you take a little balloon, you begin to breathe into that balloon. Um, and you just blow a little bit into that balloon. Uh, that balloon is full of air, right? But is it at capacity? No. It can still be filled with air more. So our faith could maybe be compared to that. Where when we begin following after Jesus in our lives, when we are saved and when we say, Lord, you're Lord of my life, I follow after you. And, and we say, I'm full of faith. Maybe that's the faith that you're able to comprehend in that moment. But then what does God do? God stretches us and continues to stretch us. And we find that we can contain more faith, even though we thought we were full of faith. Now we realize that that was just a little bit of faith. And God continues to stretch us and to grow us and to mature us in this faith. But understand that faith must be tested before it can be trusted. If your faith isn't tested in the little things, then good luck enduring the storms of life. Good luck enduring it when the storm really comes and hits and it feels like the boat is going to break apart on its own. How's that faith going to stand up in those moments? Can I tell you? It won't. It won't if you've never allowed it to be tested. If you've never walked through those other things. And so God tests and allows that faith to increase. And so we see these disciples emerge with a totally different view of Jesus. And in fact, that's a theme that we're going to see today. What man is this? What man is this? Who is this man? Totally exceeding any of the expectations that we have. And so we see these storms that hit suddenly. We see these storms that they hit believers and even believers living obediently. And these storms, uh, we can be grateful. They don't make Christ fearful. They only make us fearful. Um, and even Spurgeon, a uh, great preacher, English preacher of uh, a couple of centuries ago, he said this. Um, he said, Jesus spoke to the men first for they were the most difficult to deal with. Wind and sea could be rebuked afterwards. <laughs> so he speaks to us so often, God calms us before he calms the storm, because you and I are a little more uh, difficult to bring under control than the storms tend to be. And so we see that Jesus demonstrates this power over nature and over these circumstances. Not only that, we must continue. Verse number 28 when he came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Now, in other passages, um, we read that these men um, were uh, naked, um, and they were running around in these things. They were breaking chains when men tried to bind them. Um, and so uh, we understand this is not a great situation, Okay. Um, I'm being fearful again if a naked man is running at me and screaming. And so what happens? They come out and they say, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pig, many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged them saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. Behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. 
The herdsmen fled going into the city, told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. A lot happening here. So here we have these two men that are demon-possessed. The book of Luke was the lengthiest uh, description of this. He only describes one man, um, but it's not a contradiction in that if there's one, if there's two men, there's one man, right? Um, that's just how math works. And so we see that Jesus comes in here. It's the city, the region known as the, that of the Gadarenes. So this is a place where there are both Jews and Gentiles that uh, live. They're dwelling in here. It's not exclusively a Jewish community, not exclusively a Gentile community, probably Jewish and Gentile both. Um, we see here these pigs that are sitting nearby. These pigs likely, in fact, this kind of is a big flag waving saying Gentiles nearby. Because if you're familiar with um, kosher diets, um, Jews, uh, Jewish uh, followers of the Jewish tradition, even today, um, those that follow the kosher rules of the law don't eat any kind of pork, right? And so we see that this is probably a possession of Gentiles. And so Jesus is most likely speaking to a Gentile dense demographic. Even if Jews owned these pigs, they would not have been the herdsmen caring for them. That's unclean. You're ceremonially outcast. And so if they were Jews on the outside chance, they were irreligious Jews at best. And so that's kind of the crowd that now Jesus is coming and Jesus is speaking to. And so as Jesus comes, what happens? These men they cry out and they realize what? Who Jesus is immediately. They say, what have you to do with us, O son of God? And so they are, in their own rights, they are the ones that are afraid here, aren't they? And this must have been very uh, shocking, to say the least, to the men who witnessed this. Because you have to think these men that have snapped chains and they've done all these crazy things. And hey, like you tell your kids, don't go over there because there are crazy people, right? And so everyone was afraid. You couldn't even go by the area that these men lived at. They lived like animals, literally. And they were fear-inducing to everyone in the community. And so now all of a sudden we find Jesus in this area. Who knows if he had been warned, hey, don't go over there because crazy people. But he does. And then the response to Jesus isn't the same tactics they use when anyone else came around, but what do they do? They run to him and they cry out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Why are you here? What do you think you are doing? And Jesus, what does uh, Jesus respond to this? Uh, even they continue, they say, uh, have you come here to torment us before the time? And so what they're saying is like the time for us to be uh, cast out and overcome is not here yet. One day we know that there will be that time that comes, but it's not yet, is it? And what happens? They, they beg him. They beg him. If you can imagine these men who have been crude and, uh, and disturbing to anyone who had passed by this area, now they are begging Jesus. If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And uh, this is likely they're referencing many scholars believe this is instead of being cast into hell, being cast into the abyss, being sent to the lake of fire, to punishment. And that's what they're pleading for is the opportunity to not be brought into that yet. And so what does Jesus say? What is his response to these men? He doesn't say a lot to these demons. Uh, what does he say? He says one word. He says, go. And what do they do? They go. 
And so they go into these pigs, and these pigs, what happens? It begins this uh, stampede, and they go down, and they, they drown in this area, in this, uh, in this lake. And then the herdsmen, the ones that have been watching, they're kind of witnessing all of this. They say, excuse me, what in the world is happening? They go back to town, and then what do people do? How do they respond? They come back, and these two men that have been possessed with demons, um, another passage tells us they're now sitting and clothed and in their right mind. And so they come back, they see these men, wait a second, those guys, is that the same guy that was like chasing my kid around here or whatever, you know, like, is that that dude? Because he looks different. They recognize them. And what do they say to Jesus? What's their response to Jesus? Hey, uh, can you go away? You're bad for business. Can you leave? Really? Everything they just witnessed, everything they just saw, and please go somewhere else. You're causing problems. Everything was under control when we had violent nudists wandering the countryside. What is wrong with these people? Uh, but what do we see is that we see these swine are destroyed. Um, and uh, Spurgeon, again, he uh, missed comments, so sometimes just kind of cracked me up. He said the devil drives his hogs to a bad market. Um, so that's what we see, right? We see these demons that uh, push these hogs over the edge. The, the, we see this, these men set free. And one of these men, we have recorded again in Luke, that even begged to follow after Jesus after this. But the response of the people is, leave. Leave. You see, they're more concerned with the interruption to their way of life than what Jesus could do. This is like a whole town. Can you imagine this? A whole town coming together and saying, we're going to have a prayer meeting. And then we open the prayer meeting and say, God, would you please leave us alone? But that's what's happening. But again, before we're too critical on these men, what are they upset about? Jesus has come and he's brought an interruption into their lives that they hadn't anticipated. How do you like it when things interrupt your life and plan in ways that you don't see coming? Because before we're harsh and quick to judge these individuals, the mirror of the word is reflecting back at us. We don't like interruptions, do we? We don't like it when we're on a phone call and our kids come up and they're pulling on our shirt and they're, mom, mom, dad, dad, this, this. We, we don't care for that. We especially don't like it when our plans are set for the day and then the car doesn't start or whatever. The illness that strikes. The unexpected passing of someone that we care about. This person over here down the road, they're, oh, they just make my life so difficult. We don't like those interruptions, do we? In fact, we, we push them away and we avoid them. But what if, in all these situations, God's the one doing the interrupting? Because can I let you know, um, little secret here, he is. Because the things that are outside of your control are still in his. So the situations that come into your life that you say, I could have never seen this coming, I had no... Hello? There is still someone on the throne. Jesus didn't turn around and say, oh no, I forgot about... Like, that doesn't happen. I do that. You do that. He doesn't. 
And so he demonstrates this power that he has over these demons even. And now what happens again? They are just dumbfounded at the work that he has done because now we see Jesus, not only does he have power to heal the sick and oh yeah, that's small time now because he has power over nature. He has power over these demons. In fact, a legion of demons that are occupying these men. But then we find that really the climax of this takes place in the first few verses of chapter number nine. And this is a story that seems uh, maybe a little pedestrian compared to the first two. But Matthew's building to this story. Don't take this one for granted just because it doesn't have the uh, Hollywood factor of the first two. Watch what's happening. Getting into the boat. So again, they beg to leave their region and uh, Jesus says, okay. Um, And that's one of the unfortunate things when we uh, tell God to leave. Um... Okay, not that he doesn't continue pursuing, but when we ask God to uh, not be a part of our lives, it's very difficult for us to turn around and say, God, why would you allow this? And so what does Jesus do? He left. And so verse number nine, getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic laying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, as far as we know, this is the first time that he has approached a sick man this way. As far as we know, this is the first time, and we, we're going to read here in a moment, um, that there are Pharisees and religious leaders, there are scribes that are in the area that are hearing these things. And so these men bring this friend to Jesus on a bed. Um, in another gospel, um, most people believe this is the same story where uh, these men, Jesus was surrounded by a crowd, and so they went up to the roof and they uh, dug a hole in the roof and lowered the man down um, on that way. It's for Jesus to heal him. And so most believe that this is the same story being told a little bit differently with some details missing. But regardless, these friends come, bring this paralytic man lying on a bed. And what takes place here? Um, before, we even get to, before we even get to this, I want to understand the context. Um, the sick and the weak in culture um, have always kind of carried a stigma. Um, there's always the, uh, uh, the, the down-the-nose look at those who are sick or weak by the culture at large. Um, that still exists today. Within the church, God willing, no, because we see that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. And so the church ought to care for those who are unable to care for themselves. Um, that's part of who the church ought to be. But especially in the day and age that we're reading about here, a paralytic man um, is kind of an outlier on society. Um, The resources of society are strained, and so some view these lives as being just a burden to the culture at large. And so as these men are bringing a paralytic, this is a, uh, it would have been something impressive today, more so even in this culture. And oftentimes, the reason for this was that uh, false teachers had begun to promote the idea that the sickness of an individual was a result of either their sin or a family member's sin. And so they would look at a sick individual and they would uh, say, you know, "Mm, real shame that there's that sin that that guy won't repent of. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure it's there because looking at the outside evidence. And so they would come and they would pronounce judgment, many of the religious would, on the sick and on those who had these ailments. 
And so they weren't interested in ministering to them because if they would just get their life right, then God would all of a sudden magically. No, 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 no. We understand that's blatantly false. But then what we also see here in uh, this passage is we see that uh, this man, and now we see his friends that are coming. They're bringing him here. Um, John chapter 9, in fact, specifically addresses that way of thinking, by the way, um, as a blind man's brought to him. And they say, oh, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, no, 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 neither. Um, this man is blind so that God might be glorified in him. And then he heals him and he can see again. And so watch what takes place here, though. They come, they bring this paralytic on the bed. Verse number two of chapter nine. When Jesus saw their faith. So Jesus sees their faith. Can I ask you this question? What does faith look like? Can you see faith? You're like, uh, I mean, it's kind of a trick question because like, if I said, okay, guys, here is faith. You would say, what? <laughs> There's nothing there. It's intangible. But at the same time, Jesus sees their faith. Well, when it says Jesus sees their faith, it would be a lot like saying, did you see that wind? Do we see wind? Does anyone have seen the wind? Jesus uses this example in John chapter number three. We don't see the wind. What do we do? We see particles and leaves and trees and all these things that are caught up in the wind being moved about as a result of it. So it is with faith. As Jesus looks at these men, does he just see all of a sudden, he's like, oh, your faith is, uh, oh yeah, that's pretty good faith. No. He sees the demonstration of this faith. Faith is an invisible object with, a, with visible evidence. An invisible object with visible evidence. So if you want to come to me and say, hey, I have faith, James, in fact, writes a whole book that has a big, dense section of it in the first couple of chapters that speaks to this problem. Because there are many of those who would say, look at me, I have faith, and then there would be no demonstration of it. If we stood at the windows out here and looked at the parking lot and said, wow, it is really windy out there. And there were no leaves blowing around. There were no trees or reeds bending. There was no snow coming across. You'd be like, I don't think it is. I'd be like, oh yeah, it's so windy. And you say, no, 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 it's not. I'd be like, you can't see the wind. You don't know how windy it is. And then you would look at me like I'm an idiot, which is appropriate because we can tell if it's windy or not. You know, it's, we're, it's able, we are able, it is possible for us to see faith. Not that we see faith itself, but we see the demonstrations of faith. Because let me ask you this. If you have a sick friend and you have to carry him by hand across town to go see a man who you think can heal him. And then not only that, there's a crowd. And so we have to go up to the roof, destroy someone else's property, um, and then lower him down. Like if this is your project to get your friend healed, can I say this? You think he's getting healed. You're not going there for like, ah, you know what? Maybe there's an outside chance. At least I'm not. Maybe you're a better friend than I am. It's possible. But I'm, I'm not carrying you across town for this dude that's just a guy right? He's just another guy. No, 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 no. Unless I understand and have faith that there is something significant and special about him, I ain't doing that. But Jesus looks and he says, wow, faith. He sees this faith. 
If someone were to look at you and then look at your life, what are the evidences of faith that you have? What are the things that you could point to and say, hey, here's a demonstration of my faith? Um, and can I, can I say this? I'm glad you're here uh, in church today. That's a good thing. Okay, one of our next steps is Sundays. Just being here with the body of believers. It's how we grow. It's how we continue to encourage one another. It's valuable. If your faith ends there, that's pretty anemic faith. If your faith stops, if it only exists on Sunday from 1030 till 3 o'clock, um, then some of you get it later, then that's not a good faith. That's not a healthy faith. Your faith is lacking. You're that little faith, right? Because that faith continues with us. It's part of who we are. And so its evidence is continually demonstrated throughout our lives. Why? Because it's part of us. We can't check it at the door. It's contained within. And so the evidence manifests itself all around. And so faith is an invisible object, but it has visible evidence. And here, watch what Jesus does. He takes this opportunity to demonstrate his power to these scribes. Because what does he say? He doesn't say, uh, arise, take up your bed and walk yet. But instead he says, and he knows what he's doing. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And if you're laying there in bed, you know, you're, uh, you might just be like, wait a second. <laughs> That's not what I came for. But Jesus here says, what does he say? He says, your sins are forgiven. Can you see sins being forgiven? With your eyes, can you watch when someone, when sins are forgiven, when someone is saved, they place their faith in Christ, can you just watch the sin vanish away from their lives? Can you just watch the sin wash off of them? No. So Jesus, just like saying, have faith, he says, your sins are forgiven. And so what do the scribes say? They say, wait a second, this guy's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. If you ask me, just my opinion, only God can forgive sins. And so they're trying to poke at Jesus and criticize Jesus. But Jesus understands and hears and knows there's their heart. Because watch this in verse 3. Behold, some of the scribes said to who? To themselves. This man is blasphemy. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said out loud, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? And which one of those is easier to say? I mean, well, it's easier to verbalize, oh, your sins are forgiven, because there's no like physical evidence of that. So they're kind of accusing Jesus of being like a huckster, of being a fraud. And so uh, you say your sins are forgiven, but I mean, like, okay, sins are forgiven. Oh, yeah, I can do that too. And Jesus looks at him and says, okay, which is easier? Sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And then what does he do? Uh, Verse six, that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he says, I'm going to do this so that you understand that I can do both the visible and the invisible. I'm not afraid of this challenge. What does he say? He says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And what does the man do? He rose and went home. He did exactly what he was told to do. You see, um, he, when Jesus asks for this obedience, he's also giving the power to obey right there in the very words. When he says, rise, take up your bed and go home, 
He's giving him the ability as well as the command. And so what does the man do? Listen, if a guy tells you who've been a paralytic for, we don't know how long, rise, pick up your bed and go home. You're getting up, you're picking up your bed and you're going home, right? And so he does. And this is a visible demonstration, not only of the fact that he can heal, but also watch this, that he can forgive sins. You see, there had been others that had come before as prophets and that um, had been able to work some miracles and be able to do some things that uh, impressed and proved God being with them. But, but Jesus, it's not just God with Jesus. Jesus is God with us. This is a totally different thing. And so now the miracles have gone from being, uh, hey, I'm healing these sick and hey, uh, we're making these lame to walk again. As impressive as that is, to now I'm shutting down the wind in the storm. I'm calming the sea. Now it's going to that next level. It's I'm taking not just a demon here or there, but there's a legion of demons possessing these men. But I have authority over a legion of demons. They don't, they're begging for their life in front of Jesus and he casts them out. And then we see him coming to this man and not only saying, rise, take up your bed and walk, but saying, watch this, your sins are forgiven you. See, the scribes, the Pharisees, they weren't accusing Jesus of blasphemy until he started trying to do the things that God himself could only do. Up until that point, you're healing people. You're like, we're skeptical of this guy, but that's cool, I guess. But then he comes and says, hey, your sins are forgiven. Whoa, hold on. Only one person has the power to forgive sins. And Jesus says, agreed. (laughs) Rise, take up your bed and walk. Because we look at this man and we see Jesus and the claims that Matthew is making in this passage cannot be denied as being he believes that Jesus, this Jesus that he followed, was the son of God. That he was the only one that was able to come as a worthy sacrifice on our behalf. You see, the same sin that the paralytic man had is the same sin that you and I are born with as well. All of us come into the world with sin. Even the great King David, he writes, he says, in sin, my mother conceived me before my birth. Sin already possessed me and had a hold of me. Paul would write to the Romans and say, hey, listen, you were dead in your sins, not alive in your sins. They had you. You were a slave to this sin. But Jesus, because when we come to Romans chapter five, verse number eight, Paul tells us God commanded, he demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, not we cleaned ourselves up and made ourselves so righteous that now Jesus could come and grab a hold of us. But while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The godly for the ungodly, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the gospel. If we could say it in one sentence, it'd be this, Jesus in my place. You see the wages of sin is death separation from God for eternity. And that's what we're condemned to in our sin. But Jesus, you see, Jesus, we read about it a few weeks ago. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the message. Matthew chapter number four, Satan comes to him and tempts him. He says, sin, sin, give in, give in. And Jesus over and over and over again, rebukes Satan says, no, 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 no. That's not who I am. He has victory over this sin. And yet he chose to go to the cross to allow himself to be killed on our behalf, to die the death that we deserve to die so that we can live. And just like that first song we sung today, whoever believes in him will live forever. 
You see, maybe you came into this room and you said, I'm a little bit skeptical. I haven't been to church in a while, or maybe I've never been a part of a church, anything like that. Maybe you came into this room and you said, I'm curious about what's going on and what they're doing there. See cars in the parking lot, you know, what's going on? Hey, listen, can I say, we're glad you're here. If you're in here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, can I tell you, there's not a better decision that you can make than to follow after him. Because there's no other son of God. There's no other one who's able to calm the storm and to exercise the demons to, to forgive sins. There's not a one. It's him and him alone. And so our faith, as we come together on Sundays as a church, and we lift up our voices and we worship, it's because there's no one else who's worthy of this worship. And when we behold Christ, we say, who is this man? Who is this man that anyone else would look to anything else? And for those of us that are believers, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, as well as those considering or being called to that, there's a response to this authority in all of these stories. We see in Matthew chapter 8, verse number 27. We see it in Mark chapter 5, verse 20, records a little more about these demonic man, men. Matthew chapter 9, verse number 8. All three of these stories, you know how these men responded? They're amazed and wonder. They're, they're, uh, there's a part of them that's uh, afraid, but awestruck. They, they don't know how to comprehend the work that God is doing through Christ. Why do we feel amazed? Why do we feel that sensation at times? Why is it when we stand before an awe-inspiring scene that we just can't help but have our breath taken away from us? Uh, it's this, this feeling of this thing that just exceeds our ability to comprehend it. We're amazed when our understanding of something is exceeded by what it actually is. You see a picture of the Grand Canyon and then you go visit. It pales in comparison. When we think we understand who God is and then God demonstrates that he's greater than that, it produces awe, amazement, wonder. But I want to tell you this this morning, that God is not limited by our expectations. God is not limited by our expectations. Even as we walk through life and we begin to have, we say, I have faith in God. I believe that God is who he says he is. I believe these things to be true. Oftentimes our understanding of God pales in comparison to who he really is. You want to grow your faith? Have a more full understanding of God. Believe the truth about God. Your faith will increase. Because our faith grows as our faith and our understanding come into alignment with who God really is. Can I say this? You can't overestimate God. You can't look and be like, oh man, I thought God was, um, I thought he would be able to do that. Listen, we can overestimate each other. We can overestimate so many things. But when it comes to Jesus Christ and his death, his burial, resurrection, his power in our lives to forgive sins and to free us, you can't look at that and overestimate it. You can't say, oh, well, I really thought he could save that person. You can't. You can't say, I really thought that he could uh, overcome and that he could bring me out of this bondage. Well, he can. There's no situation that you could present before him and say, God, can you do this? Well, the answer is yes, he can. Even Mary in the book of Luke, as she is praising God for the work that he's doing through sending his son through her. Uh, what does she say? She says, with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. I don't know what you're walking through in life right now. We have a hundred and something people here today. 
I don't know every situation. I know some of them. I know bits and pieces. I know my life. Can I tell you, he's big enough. He's strong enough. Whatever you're wrestling with, maybe, maybe you say, hey, we go to church on Sunday and we look good. We, we nod, we sing the songs, we say, hey. But at home, our marriage is it's just it's tough. Can I say this? Jesus is strong enough. Maybe your kids, they're just, they're breaking your heart. It happens. We're a parent. We see our kids make decisions. Can I say this? Jesus is strong enough. We look at the world around us today and we say, man, how did we get here? So divided. So, so angry all the time. So, so hopeless. Again, Jesus is strong enough. He can calm the storms on the outside. He can calm the storms on the inside. He addressed both of them, didn't he? And so there's nothing that we're walking through that's outside of his ability and outside of his power. Does that mean he immediately steps in and just fixes everything and makes it all right? Is he your helicopter parent, Jesus? No. But it does mean that he's, he's got you. He's got you. Does it mean it's going to look like what you want it to look like all the time? Probably not. You could ask this man, hey, would you like to be paralyzed so Jesus can heal you? Uh, no. <laughs> hey, guys, would you like to be in the storm where you think you're going to die so that Jesus can shut it down? No. Hey, demon possessed man, you want to spend a few years running around here naked, scaring people? No! We don't always like the storms. In fact, most of the time we don't. But that doesn't change the fact that God uses them in our lives to grow our faith and to help demonstrate his ability to change our lives. Because the fact is, at the end of the day, in each of these three scenarios, who gets the glory for the things that took place? Who calmed the storm? I mean, you can't say the disciples, oh, wow, they did such a great job of throwing that water out of the... No. Like, no. Oh, those demon-possessed men, they just fought so hard. No. That paralytic, he just suddenly, he made up his mind that he was going to walk. Excuse me, have you spent time with someone who was paralyzed? That's not how it works. Who gets the glory? Jesus does. But let me tell you this in your life as well. We can try and try and try, and we're going to end up with the same results over and over and over again. Because no matter how much you think you can... Open secret. Everybody else in here knows that you can't. You can't. But Jesus can. He's able. He has the power. So I want to encourage you, those of you who say, hey, I've never placed my faith in Jesus. I've never been born again or been saved. We'd love to have that conversation with you today. Maybe you're a believer in here and you say, hey, I am a Christian. I know that for a fact. I've placed my faith in Jesus. Can I say this? Never stop allowing your faith to be increased. We don't get to a plateau and say, my faith is good enough. Because the moment you think that, just, just wait. There's a storm coming. There's a storm coming. And God continues to grow our faith in Christ. So who is this man? Can I tell you this? He's the one that's worth following. You can look anywhere else. You can seek anywhere else. You can Google. You can do whatever. Do whatever you want. It's fine. You're going to come to the same conclusion. There's only one that's worth following. There's only one that's a foundation that's worthy to be built on. His name is Jesus Christ. 